This is episode number 101. Is passion a bad thing? The Passion Paradox with Brad Solberg. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. I think a lot of what us pushers do is we get really excited, and then we sign up for something, and then we finish that, and then we get excited again, so then we sign up for the next thing, and it's like this endless ladder, and unless you give yourself some space to just like stay at one step, and see what that step feels like and enjoy that step, then you're gonna constantly be wanting to take the next step. So it's like forced slowing down. What's up guys and gals? Thanks so much for hanging out with me today and I hope your week is off to an awesome start. I'm just back from an awesome weekend in Squamish and it was my first time being back in Squamish this year. I am trying to spend more time there, so spending a lot of time there in the non-winter months. And the mountain biking there is just incredible. It's so challenging, and for me, I really enjoy the technical challenge of trails. And the community there is unreal. I went out for a toonie race, which is, a toonie is the $2 coin in Canada. And it's just kind of a locals race. And the local cross-country race was literally insane. Like the the cross-country trails were ones that people wouldn't be caught dead riding a cross-country bike on. So I was actually nervous. I was more nervous for the Toonie ride than I was for the Cape Epic, simply because of how technical it was. And it was also wet. So I had a great time at that event. And the cool thing about it is there's an organization called SORCA, the Squamish Off-Road Cycling Association. And they're responsible for all the awesome trails. And they've done such a great job building community by having like social rides and different types of races and these bike events and just bike social events. And I haven't really experienced a cycling community that's as united as it is there. So it's really cool to start becoming a part of that. I'm trying to get fitter and gear up for the U.S. Marathon Nationals, which are coming up in a couple of weeks. And I have to say there's been some ups and downs. I've been kind of tired. And I I think that just after Cape Epic, it's just been hard to dig out of that. And while the race itself went pretty well with minimal training, I think it's the recovery and the after effects of not having a lot of training going into that event that's causing delayed recovery. And also I keep trying to push it too soon. So trying to really respect my body and just accept where it is and be happy with doing my best leading into the race, even though it's not exactly the preparation that I would have dreamed of. And that topic leads perfectly into this week's episode. It's about passion. And we're told that we should follow our passion and that life is amazing if you're doing the thing that you're passionate about. And I do agree to a certain extent that that's true. But personally, I don't know if you've experienced this, but the desire for more, the desire to be chasing more and that no accomplishment is ever good enough is something that haunts me. And also just chasing the passion so much that all the other things in your life kind of suffer from it. I've had that happen too. So whenever I discovered this book, The Passion Paradox by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus, I was really excited 
And I am a fan of their work already. You've heard the podcast Peak Performance with both of them that was, gosh, coming up on probably two years ago. Peak Performance is a book about burnout and resting and balancing stress and rest so that you can achieve optimal results. And I really love that book. And Brad actually came on another time after that to talk about burnout specifically, because that was something that I really struggled with last year and still am kind of walking the fine line of burnout. So definitely go back and listen to those two podcasts. They are in the show notes. But as I mentioned, Brad Stolberg is no stranger to my podcast. And this is actually the third time I've had him on the show. He's a co-author of two books, The Passion Paradox and also Peak Performance, as I mentioned. He's a consultant and coach on topics like burnout, resilience, self-awareness, long-term goal-setting strategies, the linkage between mental health, well-being, and performance, and so much more. The guy is one of my favorite people to read and follow. He also writes about human performance in his regular column in Outside Magazine or in publications like the New York Times, Thrive, Sports Illustrated, and more. He's my favorite person to follow on Twitter because he always has insightful and actionable information, and I find myself wanting to retweet every single post that he puts up there. In this episode, we go deep into his new book with co-author Steve Magnus. The book is, again, The Passion Paradox, and it's right up our alley. And it's about what happens whenever we pursue our passion at all costs and how passion can actually become a curse, leading to endlessly chasing achievement or the next thing. This book is about how to harness your passion in a healthy, sustainable way so that it leads to fulfillment. It's a great read, and it's backed by research and inspiring stories about people who have both had healthy relationships with passion and also people who have suffered greatly from it. Some topics discussed in this podcast and some takeaways that you'll have are what is the difference between obsessive and harmonious passion, how to define your core values, that way you can follow passions that are in accordance with them, how to have a healthy relationship with numbers and results, why our efforts never feel like they are enough, and how to know if your passion is a positive or a negative thing and why we feel the need to keep seeking more. So I know that this is going to ring a bell with a lot of you. It certainly rang a bell with me. And I'm so excited that I got to be a part of this and that I got to read the book really early on and get this podcast out to you guys. You can buy the book wherever books are sold, wherever you prefer it. They also have an audiobook out. And if you enjoyed this episode, I also highly recommend checking out Peak Performance. Again, that's one of my favorite books. Before we get into it, I want to thank our podcast sponsor, Kuat Racks. And I definitely use my Kuat Rack over the weekend driving to Squamish. I have a hitch mount rack and I have two bikes on the back. And the rack out of the box is, it's like an Apple product. It, the, even the box is part of the assembly process. So it's just really easy to use and the assembly process is easy to set up. I know that uh, I can admit that setting things up out of the box is something that's annoying for me. Like I actually had this Ikea bookshelf that was sitting in the box for dot, 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 15 months until my husband finally built it for me because I wouldn't do it. And I didn't have that resistance when I got my Kuat rack. It was really easy to set up. And I'm always confident that my bike is safe on the back of it while we are driving like maniacs down the highway. So Kuat's doing a lot of cool things. They also are getting into the outdoor market with some other ways of carrying around your favorite gear, like your skis and your kayaks. So go to kuatracks.com and it's spelled K-U-A-T racks.com and check out all the goods. 
big shout out and thank you to those of you who have left a review on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Leaving reviews and ratings make a massive difference to the growth of the show and the visibility of the show. So if you're enjoying it and you want to make sure others find it too, take a few seconds and leave us a review and I read them all and I just really want to say thank you very much. Also, thank you again to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon. You are supporting the growth and the team associated with this show. We have our podcast producer, Roma, who does an amazing job making sure that this show sounds great in our ears every week. And we also have my assistant, Tina, who makes sure that this show gets uploaded and who's been helping me contact guests. So every dollar that you guys contribute, even if it's only a couple bucks a month, makes a big difference to helping our team and helping this show get better. So thank you. And lastly, if you didn't know, I've self-published and released my own plant-based cookbook called The Plant-Powered Tribe Cookbook. And there's about 25 recipes in this cookbook and it's geared towards simplicity, health, and all the things that you need as an athlete to make you perform. So if you're interested in checking it out, you can go to moxieandgrit.com, M-O-X-Y and grit.com. And the Plant Power Tribe cookbook is there. It's digital, so you'll get an instant download as soon as you go through the checkout. And I really appreciate it, you guys. All right, let's get into this awesome episode about passion with Brad Stolberg. Welcome back to the show, Brad. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be talking with you. Yeah, I was so excited to hear that you had another book coming out, The Passion Paradox, and I loved reading it. Mm, thank you. I figured that you would when I sent you a heads up that it was coming out because I know from our prior discussion recorded and then some of our offline discussions, I, I'm not surprised that you liked it. I, I would have guessed there's some stuff in there that resonates with you. Yeah, and we kind of started touching on this a little bit in our last podcast episode, which everyone should listen to and I'll put in the show notes. But I love that you guys defined passion in a really different way than most people in society talk about passion. So do you want to go into detail about that? Yeah. So the way that myself and my co-author Steve Magnus think about passion is this enthusiasm, zeal or drive for a given activity or pursuit but we don't define that as necessarily positive nor negative. It just is. And that's some of the nuance that we wanted to bring to the conversation about passion, that passion's not this beautiful, energizing thing, though it can be. And it's also not this terrible thing, though it can be. It's just this really strong drive and emotion. And whether or not it is productive or destructive is really around how you practice passion day in and day out versus just having this force kind of pull you wherever it wants to. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting how you went into the history of the word passion and how it, it meant something kind of different. Yeah, it's funny because um, some individuals who are religious, when they first heard about the book, they're like, well, of course, passion's not all good. Like, Passio of the Christ. And Steve nor I are not really very religious. So, you know, I had heard of Passion of the Christ from that Mel Gibson movie in the 90s, but that was it. So when we started to study the etymology of the word, yeah, sure enough, for like its first thousand years of use, it was completely wrapped up in suffering. And it's only more recently that passion has taken on more of a positive connotation, which again, like the history of the word kind of bears out the science, which is that passion can lead to suffering. Yet, it, like I said, it can also be a pretty productive thing, too. 
Yeah. And like last time we chatted, we talked about harmonious versus obsessive passion. And I'd love to go back to what that is. That way, in case people didn't hear the last episode, they are caught up. Yeah, for sure. There's two kinds of passion. The first kind is harmonious. And that is when you are super passionate about doing an activity because you love doing the activity itself. And obsessive passion is when you become passionate about the external validation. So the rewards, the relevance, the money, the fame that might come from doing an activity. And you get more excited about that stuff than you do about the activity itself. And no one exists, at least no one that I've met, exists either completely on either side. It's a spectrum. The dangerous thing is when the passion shifts from being predominantly harmonious to predominantly obsessive. And no one wants this to happen. It's just kind of this subtle thing that can happen to all of us. Uh, A common path is people start doing something because they love it and they throw their all into it and then they get good at it. And when they get good at it, they start getting these positive results and the external validation that comes with that. And then it's really easy to latch on to that and almost forget that, hey, what I really love is doing the activity, not all the stuff that comes with doing the activity. Yeah. And I think that the identity getting tied up in the recognition and in the results, like I am a best-selling writer. I am a really fast bike racer. Like that identity becomes difficult because if you have something like you have a race performance that isn't good or you write a book and it doesn't perform well or an article, then suddenly that's disproving that you are good at whatever that recognition was. Totally. And it can be a huge crisis of identity because if you identify so much with that external result or that external brand marker and then that thing goes away, it's like, well, crap, who am I? What am I good for? What's my self-worth? And even if that thing doesn't go away, passionate people struggle to be content. So like it's never going to be enough. So it's like, great, you won a national championship. Now you need to win a world championship or you won a world championship. Great. Now you need to break a world record. Or you're a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Great. Now I need to be a New York Times bestseller. So anytime that you're kind of on that cycle of wanting the next external thing, even if you keep getting them, it's still never enough. So there's really like no way that it's positive because if it stays positive, you want more. And then eventually when the performance ebbs, because that happens to everyone, it can lead to real source of distress that kind of obsessive passion is associated with burnout, depression, anxiety, and also with cheating, which makes total sense. Because like you said, if you're like the best-selling author and you don't have an idea for a book, well, it's like, who am I? Or if you're the, the fastest bike racer, but you start to stagnate, it's like, well, who am I? So then the temptation's there to plagiarize or to use performance enhancing drugs or to do anything to maintain this identity. So yeah, it's good to start talking about the negative side of things first because it's like a a slippery slope that you don't have to slide down. And if you don't, then passion can be this incredible thing. Yeah, and I mean, I think that everybody listening can identify with that obsessive passion because it's all in us. What should somebody do if they realize that they have fallen down the rabbit hole of being really focused on results and recognition and external motivation? Yeah, so the first thing that I say is this disclaimer which is like, I don't think the goal should be to go on four month silent retreat and develop this total equanimity where you truly don't care about any of the external stuff. 
like odds are if you're an athlete, it feels good to win a race. Whatever your job is, it feels good to hit a home run, to get promoted, to write a memo that people love, or if you're an artist, to produce work that is seen as good in the world. So the goal isn't to get rid of that emotional jolt or excitement. I'd say the goal is to make sure that most of the time, that emotional jolt or excitement isn't the driving force of your motivation. So even if it's just 51%, you love doing the thing, 49%, you love the, the external stuff, that's probably fine. And then there are times when the external stuff might be the driving force. And if it's for a very short period of time and it's contained, that's okay too. The problem is when you get in this cycle where it's constantly the external stuff. So now that like I've said that disclaimer that the goal isn't total equanimity, I mean, that is a great goal, but it, it's hard to get there. How do you prevent the obsessive passion from growing roots? Or if it has grown roots, how do you reverse it? it this sounds so simple, and it is, but simple doesn't necessarily mean easy. The trick is just to pay attention. So like if you catch yourself kind of craving the next hit, whether that, and this can be as trivial as like Instagram likes, right? This isn't necessarily like, oh, I need to get promoted. This could be, I need people to like my post. If you catch yourself craving that, and it's pretty easy to tell, you're constantly checking that is one way to tell. Another way is if when you like, we'll use social media as an example. If when you log into your account, you're in a neutral mood. And if you see like a post did really well, suddenly you're in a positive mood. Or if you see that a post didn't do well, that kind of brings you down. Those are all signs that yikes, like I'm letting myself get a little bit too caught up in this. And if you pay attention to how that makes you feel, generally it doesn't make you feel good. And you kind of like feel gross or you can feel kind of like a transient depression or just like really low, like, ugh, like what's the point of this? And then you step back and you ask yourself, like, what is the point of this? And, and most people realize that the point of it, it isn't too great, and that's a cue to just step away from doing that kind of thing. So that's when you're in the thick of it. It's not like an easy way out, and you kind of have to like really rub your nose in it and kind of like feel and taste the grossness to be like, oh, like what I really need to do is like hang out with my friends or walk my dog or like get back to doing the work itself. I think prevention is the best medicine, though. And to prevent that stuff from taking roots, something that I really try to practice myself and I encourage the athletes and entrepreneurs that I work with to do is this notion of practicing the 24-hour rule, which is if you have like a really big success or a really hard loss, you give yourself 24 hours to celebrate the success and live in that, yes, I did it, I'm the, I'm the man or I'm the woman. Or to grieve the defeat, which is like the, oh, I stink, this sucks, who am I, what am I going to do next? But after 24 hours, get back to doing the actual activity itself. Doing the activity itself, it activates a totally different part of your brain and your emotional system than the relishing or ruminating that comes with focusing on the result. And 24 hours is kind of arbitrary, like it can be 48 hours, that's fine. But the point is to have a steadfast boundary after wins or losses, where you go back to doing the thing itself. And what happens if someone suffers a crushing loss in whatever their activity is, and after 48 hours, 24 hours, they don't want to go back to the activity because they, they just don't think that that's going to be very joyful for them, or they can't find the motivation to go back to it because the loss was just so hard for them. 
So I think that, you know, this is things get certainly get a little bit more complex here. Right off the cuff, I would say then maybe you extend that to three days or a week or even a month, because sometimes like this obsessive passion can lead to burnout and you don't fix burnout within 24 hours. So if you've kind of like been on the like the precipice of burnout and then you have a crappy result that can in like you're like latched onto it, that can totally throw you over the edge. So there are a more extended break from the activity and not just from doing the activity, but from like checking and thinking about and reading about and kind of being in the activity that can be super helpful. Something else that can be really helpful is if you pretend that a friend was in the same situation that you're in, what advice would you give to that friend? And the advice probably isn't like you should just quit. The advice tends to be like, give it some more time, be kind to yourself, give it some more space, you know, just like mood follows action, like just start doing it. You don't have to feel good to start doing it. And then taking that advice and practicing it yourself. Yeah. And there's something that I really like in your book, and I've actually read this in some other places as well, that some of our personality traits, like up to 50% are actually inherited. Mm-hmm. And you guys specifically wrote about persistence as being one of mm-hmm. those inherited temperaments. What are some other inherited temperaments? And to what extent do those inherited temperaments affect us? So the inherited temperament that I know most about and that's at the heart of the book is, I guess, what you could almost call passion or like this inability to be content. And what researchers suggest is that there's a neurochemical called dopamine. And of the many things that dopamine does, one thing is that it motivates us for more. And we evolved to have dopamine because when we were like on the Serengeti, if you just had a big kill, you can't really be content because you don't know when the next famine's going to be. So you have to like keep hunting. And some individuals are insensitive to dopamine, which means they need more of it to feel good. And what ends up happening is if you need more of it to feel good, then you kind of constantly have to be striving and pushing and thinking about the next thing or doing the next thing. And just like a drug, the more that you feed that dopamine cycle, the more resistant you get to it. So it's like more, more, more. So it's this loop that feeds on itself where you constantly have to be pushing for the next thing. Now, I think we might have talked about this a little on the last show, but there and I, I have a temperament like that for sure. Me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And it's like a gift and a curse, right? Because like it can fuel great stuff, but it can also leave you just like what's like when can I ever just like be? I think there are two ways to work with it or reconcile it. One way is to try to cultivate like the opposite trait, which is contentment, which like is literally rewiring your brain. That's really hard. That's like the mindfulness meditation. That's the taking, you know, 10 days where you're not thinking about or doing anything related to your drive. And at first, like people think, oh, I'm going to meditate. That's going to be relaxing. Like, no, no, no. Like it's going to be super stressful because your brain is going to be like, no, I need to do more and I need to push and I need to be thinking about the next thing. So there's working on that, like the counter muscle to the drive. And then there's just realizing that you've got all this drive for better or worse. This is how I am. And I'm going to try to point it in productive directions. A mentor of mine is a guy named Mike Joyner, who's a researcher at the Mayo Clinic that's published gazillions of articles and is just like a super passionate person in many ways. And he talks about how it's like having only a huge driver 
in your bag of golf clubs. So like these other people, like they can putt, they can hit irons. But like if you're stuck with a driver, he's basically like, yeah, like it's good to add a club or two, but don't like shy away from the driver. Um, he actually sent me a text today unprompted, which basically said like, you're doing good work. Like, don't be scared to hit the driver. It's a gift and a curse, but usually you have some fun along the way. Yeah. I think it was like a year or two ago. I was saying that I wish that some days I could just turn it off. Like I could just feel okay with what, with where I'm at and what I've done. And that's not really complacency. Like I I don't know where the line is between contentment and complacency. I don't think it's complacency because I think contentment is like feeling really good. And then like from that point of feeling really good, still pushing if you want to like having the choice. Whereas complacency might just be like, I'm checking out. And I also think like, you know, we're so freaking hard on ourselves. And a lot of like this judgment of, oh, like I can't be content, like I have to keep pushing. Well, there might not be anything wrong with that. Again, it's like as long as that drive is pointed in positive directions, I think a lot of the suffering is when you say like, well, what's wrong with me? Why can't I turn it off? Like that's a judgment laden statement. As long as like being on is generally good and nourishing for you, it's like my mentor Mike Joyner says, well, then like hit your driver Mm -hmm. and like don't feel bad about hitting it. There are issues when you're hitting your driver and other people in your life want you to be hitting an iron. And those are like important communication conversations to have. And it's not like to say like just recklessly hit this driver. But I think it's it's the self-awareness to understand that, yep, this is how I'm wired. And I need to communicate this to the people that care about me and that I care about. And it doesn't mean I need to give up on the other stuff. But it also doesn't mean that I should shy away from this superpower, which is drive. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you guys have a chapter about, I'll call it intentional imbalance. Because, yeah, whenever you're passionate about something, it's easy to go all in and then forget about everything else or, or neglect everything else. And you do have to do that to a certain point. But knowing when to call it and to say, okay, I need to back away so that all these other areas of my life don't suffer is, is really hard. So like, what advice do you give people who are trying to find a better way of doing that? Yeah, this is a great question. I love it. This is like, when do you stop hitting the driver? Or yeah. when do you point the driver at a different hole? So like, maybe your driver has been pointed at endurance sports, or maybe it's been pointed at your career, or maybe it's been pointed at parenting or your family. And it's like, okay, when do I start swinging this club, but in a different direction? And that's what I mean by kind of like the illusion of balance is that if you're wired with a driver, balance is like hitting a five iron all day, all the time, right? And I don't know much about golf, but a five iron is like a much lesser club and you're kind of doing a bunch of different things in equal proportion and there's balance. That's really hard to force yourself to do if you like to go all in. So then it's like, okay, I'm wired this way. So how can I go all in? But with the perspective to make sure that I'm not sacrificing too much for too long to focus on this one area. And the key there is perspective. Um, But this is so hard because when you're really passionate about something and you're going all in, there's like this emotional inertia, right? It's like being in a tornado and it's really hard to see outside of the tornado. That's how I like to think of it. So you have to figure out ways to step outside of that tornado and look at the storm and everything around it versus being in the storm. There are a few ways to do this that are backed by really solid research. So the first is spending time in nature completely unplugged. There is nothing like a good day hike without your device 
to kind of make you come back into your life and think, huh, like, how am I spending my time? How do I want to? So that's one trick. Another trick is to reflect on mortality, the fact that you're not going to be around forever. If you read like a really good memoir of somebody that's in the dying process, or you just think about deeply the fact that you, know, you and your loved ones are not going to be here forever, that can be really uncomfortable and, and it can be discombobulating. And at the same time, it can help you realize that I've got limited time. Where do I want to devote it? It can give you some perspective. No one that I've ever met reflects on mortality in a genuine way and then says that they need to tweet more. Like <laughs> that just doesn't happen. And then an, another practice that can be really helpful with this is uh, a meditation practice. Uh, something that meditation can help you do is to see your situation and the thoughts and emotions tied up in that is separate from yourself so that rather than being in the movie or being in the storm, you're watching the storm. And it's a little shift, but when you're watching the storm, you can make a little bit more of like a rational decision about it than when you're in the thick of it. Yeah, something I found helpful about meditation lately is naming some of the voices that come in your head. So like I did a meditation that was really focused on self-judgment today. And it said mm. like you can actually name that voice that way it doesn't become 100 percent you. It can become like this third party. And I think in the meditation, they actually said like a it like comes on like a bad used car commercial on late night TV and you just see it and you're like, oh, there it is. There's that stupid commercial. And then you just let it go. Yeah, that's it. And like the same thing for this perspective. So like if you sit and meditate and, you know, the voice is saying like, oh, you should do this thing. Oh, you should do this thing. Just kind of like recognize that habitual thought pattern and realize that you're not it. And if you do this enough, you can tap into something that is a little bit deeper, which is like a true intention, which does a better job of telling you, like, do you really want to do this thing or not? And if it's not, then that's when you maybe start exploring a transition or a pivot. There's one more thing that is probably the easiest and the most effective, which is if you have a circle of friends that you really trust, just having them like tell you what to do. Because when you're really in the thick of the storm, sometimes it's just impossible to step outside of it yourself. So having people that you trust, that know you really well, tell you what to do, and then having the courage to listen to them can also be super helpful. Yeah, I have to say that I rely on my husband to be that person for me because he helps me zoom out. And I think being able to zoom out gives you a better perspective of what's actually happening. Yes. Yeah. So this dopamine response, I loved reading about the dopamine tolerance and how the desire and the drive for more and more can really like mess with you. Because like I'm an endurance athlete. Most of the people listening are endurance athletes. And once you achieve or you finish one distance, then you want to do more and more. So it's like, I was doing cross country, like shorter stuff. Then I was doing 50 milers and I was doing hundred milers and I was doing 24 hour races. And I was doing like many days in a row. And then I know some people that actually switch sports just because they need that dopamine hit. But is there a way you did talk about it a little bit, but how do you actually rewire the brain? Like you talked about, you can get away from that and maybe even make your brain become more sensitive again to dopamine. Yeah, so for sure, this is doable, but it's really, really, really hard. And again, it's, it's on a spectrum. So like, it's very hard to achieve total contentment if you're wired to keep pushing. I think that the foremost way to do this is to set some really hard boundaries of when you're not gonna be doing the thing 
or when you stop at a certain level and hold to that boundary for a period of time. So it might be, let's use an endurance sports example. You just ran a marathon and you've got this inclination to do ultras. Instead of signing up for the ultra, give it one year of just the marathon distance. And when that voice in your head says more, 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 like you said, just label it like, oh, that's the striving friend. I'm going to let it go. And it's going to come back a trillion times. And then if after that year you still feel like the need to do more, it probably won't be so much born out of this like excitement, but more out of like a true aspiration or a true intention. I think a lot of what us pushers do is we get really excited and then we sign up for something and then we finish that and then we get excited again. So then we sign up for the next thing. And it's like this endless ladder. And unless you give yourself some space to just like stay at one step and see what that step feels like and enjoy that step, then you're going to constantly be wanting to take the next step. So it's like forced slowing down. But this is a paradox because sometimes like you finish the marathon, you want to sign up for the ultra and like that's the best thing to do. So it's by no means saying not to do that. I think it's if you realize that you're like in this cycle of striving or craving, that's when it's good to evaluate putting some boundaries and some breaks on it versus if it feels like just more genuine, like out of joy, then keep going with it. Yeah, something that I also really loved was about purpose and coming back to your purpose, which we were talking about that earlier, like with Mm -hmm. Instagram, when you post something, the purpose shouldn't be because you want to get a lot of likes. The purpose is because you genuinely want to share stuff with your friends or like with bike racing, the purpose shouldn't be you're lining up solely because you're trying to win the race or get sponsorship or whatever. Like it should come back to your purpose. But for some people, their purpose is to get those results. But yeah. for me, like I just had this experience. I did an eight day race in South Africa like three weeks ago. And then I came home and then I did these cross country races, which I don't even normally do. And they're like 15 miles. And in the middle of the race, I just lost all motivation. And I was like, this is pointless. And it's kind of like going for that more and more and more, that big hit, that big experience, and then trying to come home and do something where it's kind of like vanilla compared to what you were doing before. Yeah, yeah. So, So in the middle of the race, I kept telling myself purpose and motivation are linked. Like the purpose of this is not to have some crazy adventure. The purpose is to get better. That's why I signed up for this. And I had to keep coming back because that voice in my head kept coming back in saying, well, this is dumb or, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. So yeah, yeah, it's just really interesting to really be aware of the purpose and then be able to reintroduce that over and over. Yeah. And to realize that you're not going to always like acutely feel good and that's okay. Like if the goal is to acutely feel good, then you're just basically like an addict chasing like the next hit of excitement. But if you, again, zoom out and take some perspective, then you can realize that, hey, like not every race is going to feel good. Not every block of training is going to feel good. And then if there are continuous periods of not feeling good, then that's when you go back to the drawing board and you say, well, well, maybe I need to rest more or maybe it is time to transition and try something new. And those are kind of the self-awareness conversations that are important to have with yourself. And I noticed in the book, there's an underlying theme of really knowing what your core values are. And then Mm -hmm. also how mastery has been a core value of some really high achievers. So Mm -hmm. how can somebody go about finding what their core values are? So it's not as hard as one would think. There are plenty of lists like on the internet 
there's a list actually in my first book, Peak Performance. I probably my publisher wants me to say that first of just common core values. And it's not an exhaustive list, but it can help you brainstorm. And core values are basically just words that summarize your guiding principles or the things that you most want to practice and embody. And most people can come up with three to five. And then under each of those core values, you can come up with very tactical practices that work in service of those core values. And that's the stuff that when you're kind of down or in a rut, you can come back to and say, am I practicing these things because they're in service of my core values? And if not, then maybe get back to those practices. And if you are and you're still in a rut, then maybe your values have changed. And that's okay. Values do change over the course of a lifetime. Yeah, and I loved some of the stories that you had, particularly the one that stuck out to me was the one about Dominique Mociano, the gymnast, because what I was a teenager when she was a teenager, I think, or maybe I was a little bit older, but I remember her and I remember like, oh, she's so young and she's so amazing. And I had no idea that the reason that she was so motivated was because she was afraid about her parents. And I know in that section, there was like different types of motivations that people have that are negative. So can we identify what some of those are? That way people can maybe see if they're having those in their life for like their goals. Yeah. So there's a lot of performance that is driven out of fear. And that can be fear of failing others. So in the case of Dominique Mochiano, it was her parents or coach. It can be fear of embarrassment. It can be fear of not being enough. It can be fear of not being relevant. And then tied into fear of not being enough, it can be like fear of failing yourself. And when you're competing out of fear, generally the emotion that comes with that is some kind of tightness or constriction. And most people can perform really well for a short period of time with that pressure and the tightness and constriction. But to try to be in like a vase of constriction for a long period of time generally doesn't work. Whereas if you can shed some of that stuff and perform just out of love or like a place of flow, that tends to be open and expansive. And that is where you can perform really well for a long period of time is when it's more out of this curiosity to see what you can do or out of like a love for the thing that you're doing itself. And I think a lot of people, especially athletes that are amateurs, they perform out of fear. And it's like they set this really high bar for themselves or they think that they're not going to be, if I don't get that sub three marathon, I suck or whatever the self-talk is. But for amateur athletes, no one really cares about that except you. And even the people like in your community, maybe they care about it for a minute, but they're probably so self-obsessed themselves that like they're going to forget whatever your race time is anyways. And if you're doing something because you feel like you need this result and you fear that if you don't have it, like you're not going to be enough, that's just not a good long-term motivator. So either stop doing whatever you're doing and see how you are uh, or try to get back to the initial reasons that you got into it. And pivoting is not always bad. Like as an endurance athlete, I fall trapped to this for sure. And I was hell bent on running a sub three marathon and I came painstakingly close and I was fighting against my body to do it. Uh, and then eventually I kind of stepped back and I'm like, I don't understand why I need to do this arbitrary number to like feel good as a runner. I grew up playing power sports. What if I just stopped running altogether and like started doing strength and conditioning and did all my aerobic exercise hiking? 
like no goals, no time, no watch, nothing. And I've done that for the last year and a half. And this is like the healthiest, happiest relationship I've had with exercise in 10 years because I'm not chasing this result. Yeah. And I think that and this isn't for everybody, but facing that fear and actually letting it happen to you can also help you not be afraid of it anymore. That's mm-hmm. something that I've done is intentionally put myself in situations where I know that I'm going to fail just to see how it would actually be so that if the worst possible thing happens, it's you realize that it's really not that bad and it's really your impression of what it would be like that's way worse than the actual outcome. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Just like rub your nose in it and realize that it's not that bad. Totally. Yeah, and also, like you said, a lot of times we're so self-obsessed with our results, our title or whatever those external things are. And realizing that it just it doesn't really matter that much, like in society yeah. or like I think of this all the time. It's like I'll be doing a bike race and it's this tiny little blip happening in the universe at that given moment in time. And to me, it seems like this really big deal. But really, it's not that big of a deal. And even if you're a professional, even if you won a race, people are going to forget. And if you're like in 10th place, like nobody's going to care except for you. So yeah, just having that perspective, I think is really helpful. Yeah. And that goes back to some of the stuff on like the reflecting on mortality and spending time in nature and just like realizing the vastness of it all. And especially the reflecting on mortality, because that can, like I said, that can be pretty discombobulating and even a bit despairing. And the point isn't like, oh, none of this matters. But the point is that like all that you really have are your actions, like in any given moment. So you're right. Like the result of that race, like you don't have that. That's transient. People are going to forget about it. But what you do have is like, do you smile at the other competitors? Do you think the volunteers like those concrete actions? That stuff is real and like it exists in the world and it affects other people. So like coming back to the actual actions that you can take. That's the only stuff that's concrete, whether a book sells or not. And no one like name a best selling book from two years ago. <laughs> I mean, like you can't like no one can. I don't think most people in like the literary world can. But like name an author or name something from a book that like you remember and has helped you at a time when you were down. You don't actually have to do it. But like, can you think of that? Oh, yeah, easily. So like that's the action. So like that's the stuff that lives on. And I think that if you were to ask, I mean, I know is an amateur athlete Back to your situation, I have one memory of a pro triathlete. I mean, I have many, but I have one that stands out. And it's not a person winning or losing a race. It's during Ironman Arizona. Jordan Rapp is like an amateur that was totally like in the suffer box to like keep my head up and keep going. And I don't know how he was doing that day. I don't remember who won that race, but I remember that because like that is a concrete action in the world. And that is so different than some external result. And to bring it more full circle, like, Some of this stuff is definitely a mindset shift, but like mindset's very woo-woo. It's kind of like overcoming an addiction. So like if you're constantly checking results, you have to name it. Like I am looking at the scoreboard way too often. And when you have the urge to look at the scoreboard, it's going to feel like ants crawling under your skin. Like I have to check. I have to check. And you just don't do it. And you keep on coming back to that. And over one, two, three, five years, eventually that stuff loses its appeal. Yeah, I I definitely have been practicing that. Like I used to, the first thing I would do when I opened my Instagram would be to go to the post I just did and see how many likes. And now sometimes I forget to even check to see, like I go to the social media for the reason that I wanted to go do it in the first place is to like kind of see what other people are doing. 
and just to check in with my friends or like podcasts. Like I used to go and check like all the time to see how many downloads. And now I rarely check it because I don't want it to affect my happiness and my purpose and the reason why I do it. Cause it's not to get lots of downloads it's to help people. And that is yeah. so much more impactful than like getting lots of downloads. And not to like turn this into therapy or coaching, but like, was it hard for you to stop checking at first? Initially it was, but yeah. I was able to tell myself like checking it doesn't matter. Like it's not going to make yeah. me happier. It's not going to do anything. How long was it before you kind of like got over the urge to check it? I don't know. I mean, I want to say maybe a couple of weeks, but I, I don't really know yeah. for sure. And then please be honest, how often do you kind of slip up and like go back into a cycle of checking? Uh, I would say every couple of weeks, like I would say that if something has had a success, then I kind of get re-addicted to it. And then I have to tell yeah. myself like, no, but I actually wish that there was an app that turned off the number of likes and downloads yeah. so you can actually see it. I think Twitter has a... They're working on it yeah. maybe. Yeah, I think they yeah. have, have like a beta thing, but I think that that would actually really help social media in some ways. Totally. Because then you're not addicted to that. But then social media is designed to be addictive. So yeah, yeah how do you balance that? <laughs> so what you're describing and why I asked you those questions, I think is really helpful for listeners because a lot of people like hear this and then they just go try to do it and then they fail. And then it's one more reason to judge themselves because they can't even succeed at this. It's hard. It's going to take a few weeks of feeling shitty and you're going to relapse probably all the time, the more used to checking this stuff you are. And it, it, it doesn't just need to be social media. It can even be like checking email a million times because that makes you feel relevant or checking like race results to see how other people are doing or checking Strava, like anything that is external validation. And when you relapse, you just have to be kind to yourself and be like, fuck, like I'm a human. Here I am again. And like I said earlier, rub your nose in it and kind of feel what it's like to be having a great day and have it bombarded. And then let that serve as a reminder the next time you have an urge to check not to. And I have no problem putting my skin in the game because this is an ongoing practice for me. Just the other day, let's say I was in a neutral mood state and I checked the sales rank on Amazon for The Passion Paradox, my new book. And it was higher than it had been by a lot. And I felt great. And I was like in a giddy mood the rest of the night. I was literally like happier playing with my 14 month old. And then I woke up the next morning and I checked the rank again and it was back down. And I started the day in such like a rut, almost like a depressive rut, just because of that. And like, instead of judging myself for being like, oh, here I am, I can't even practice what I preach. I just like really paid attention to how I felt. And it's like a bad drug high. And like, if you have enough bad drug highs, you just stop doing the drug. So I think it's important that when you do relapse, cause it's inevitable, you really feel what that's like. And then the next time you get the urge to check, hopefully you'll remember that kind of feeling that it can lead to. But my question is, in some ways, we need to have these numbers. Like if you're running a business and you're sure. like you're working with an agent or like athletes, your sponsorship is also tied up with your social media and other presences that you have and they want to know the numbers. So what's a healthy balance? Like what's a healthy relationship with those numbers so that you can feel good about your successes, but also be able to unplug from it too. Cause it, it's so hard whenever it's tied yeah. up with your, like the way you make money. Oh, for sure. So I think it's stepping back and asking yourself, how often do I need to check in a way that will lead me to change my actions? So 
if you are tweeting and the amount of impressions affects how much money you're going to get from a sponsor, it is helpful to know which tweets do well and which tweets don't. If you are an author and you're trying to sell books, it is helpful to know if you're selling books or not because that can influence your publicity campaign. You can do that like once a week and that's probably plenty. And I know it sounds crazy, right? But that's the truth. Maybe twice a week. Definitely once a day. That seems excessive. Once every hour? Is it really going to change your action? Probably not. Before like instant technology, you'd think about like companies and it was quarterly earnings. They'd check once a quarter. <laughs> you know? So I think that, yes, it's helpful to have this data at our fingertips, but it can get you into these negative loops. So I would challenge anyone that feels like they need to check something more than once a week. And maybe they do, but I would challenge them to like really prod and ask those hard questions. I mean, if you're like a day trader, yeah, you need to be checking all the time. But like you don't want to be day trading your sense of self-worth. I really Ooh, like that was a good one. Yeah. I don't know where that came from, but you like just, that's how it can feel flowing. sometimes. You're in your flow state. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that there was this athlete in the book and I can't remember like it might have been a runner, but they really wanted to run for Stanford or swim for Stanford or something. And yeah. they were offered all this money to go do something else, but they turned the money down so that they could, I think it was swimming, swim for Stanford. Yeah, that's Katie Ledecky. Yeah. And I thought that that was such an interesting story because that person was probably really young. And to have that sort of like. Yeah, I think like 16. Yeah. And, I, and I'm sure that she got help from her parents and coaches, which is really solid parenting and coaching. Yeah. So can you I didn't tell the story very well. Can you tell the story better than me? That way people understand what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So Katie Ledecky is a young woman that's the most decorated American, probably, I think, overall uh, female Olympic swimmer, by far the best swimmer in the world right now and, and at the past games. And after two or three years at Stanford, she started getting offers to take professional contracts and swim professionally. And there was tons of money because she had won all these Olympic gold medals and she chose not to. She chose to remain a student athlete because she wanted to continue to have the experience of swimming collegiately and being a college student athlete. And that's the story in a nutshell. And she is currently developing better as a swimmer in college. My guess is then she would have as a pro because as a 17 year old kid with all this stuff thrown at you, it's really hard to maintain focus. But as a collegiate athlete, in many ways, you're just like the other collegiate athletes. Like you're still a, a student athlete and a kid. There are contingencies though, because like college basketball players, I think that if you're good enough to go pro and sign a contract to assure your financial stability for life, like you should probably do that. So it's not always the right move, but I think in certain instances it can be. Yeah. And I mean, that's such a great story about intrinsic motivation. Yeah. But I just think it's hard to maintain that whenever there's all these different things being thrown at you. For well, that's the, the thing. It's it's like a practice. You have to, like it's not a mindset shift. You can't just say, oh, I'm the type of person that's internally motivated. You have to like make a practice of it. And a lot of times that practice does not feel good. A lot of times it is literally just resisting the urge to spend time and energy on the external stuff, even when that's all you want to do and either coming back to the work itself or just doing something totally different. Something that can be helpful for me is that when I feel the inclination to mindlessly scroll various metrics of how I'm performing as a writer, I just go on like an hour walk and I'll listen to a podcast or I'll listen to a novel. 
And then I come back and like that, like weather pattern of wanting to check has passed and I move on with my day. Or sometimes that hasn't passed and I'm not perfect. And sometimes I come back and the first thing I do is check. But then at least I'm checking once instead of sitting there for an hour doing it. Refresh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And but I, it's like, yeah, it's hard. I think that uh, camping is something, you know, people always ask me like, oh, what are your favorite trips? Like you've been to so many countries, you've done so many things. And honestly, I it's camping. And it just kind of like the light came on during this conversation, the awe in nature. And it's because yeah. the, my favorite places to go camping are the places where there's no cell phone service. And like, you're just out there for days. And yeah. that's such a great way to rest. Yeah, you're being held by nature. I think that's a beautiful example. And in-person, intimate time with people that you care about is also high on the list. During the, like, the launch week of the Passion Paradox, I was in Oakland, where I live, and went out of my way to make sure that every single evening was something with close family and friends and not something in front of a screen. And by far, my favorite part of launching this book wasn't seeing like the thousand sales that came in the first day. It was like the fun dinner I had with my friends that was totally unplugged from technology and like chasing my kid around. But at the time, it felt really hard to make the choice to do that instead of like engage in the cycle of validation. Mm -hmm. And what happens if someone has multiple passions? Because I know that some people are very single focused, but if you're using your term an excitement junkie and then you have all these different things that you're passionate about, what's the best what's way, the best way to uh, kind of harness those? Like if you want to do everything and you love everything. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that then it's just a matter of kind of like we said, evaluating the trade-offs and, and what your goals are. And if you're constantly switching when things get hard, that is something to be aware of because then maybe you won't get the fulfillment of like really going deep on something. But if you're going deep on a bunch of things and your interests change frequently, that's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with following those interests. Yeah. And something else that I really liked was that the better you get at something, the longer your plateaus are going to be. And yeah, yeah, like that's something that we've all experienced. We've worked hard at something and it's like, I just want to make that 1% gain and it's not happening and it's not happening. And then a lot of people quit because they're not seeing that improvement. Yeah, sitting on the plateau is 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 hard. And that comes back to you have to like the activity itself, not just seeing the improvement. And for athletes, like eventually you age. And I think women get like a few extra years where they can get faster. But for all of us, like we hit a certain age in the physiology and the biology, like you get slower. And if the only reason you're doing something is to get faster, it is going to be a very rough transition when you start getting slower. Some people can't stand that transition and they just stop doing the sport and do something else altogether. And that can be a very healthy choice. Other people kind of get into a new relationship with the thing. And that new relationship is maybe one where it's more about doing it out of joy than out of the need to get faster. And for the real junkies, there are those like age calculators where you put in your age and it, you know, like spits out a time that is commensurate with what a 20 year old would do. Uh, I didn't even know that that existed. <laughs> but I think it's good to know that about yourself. Like when I first decided that I was done chasing a sub three marathon and stopped running, I had zero interest in running just for fitness because I didn't think I could. I'd be like so wanting to still get this time. 
so I just totally stepped away. And like for the first month, it was kind of hard. And, and then, like I said, it became pretty freeing and great. And just now, after like almost two full years of not running, I'm just like starting to get the urge to just like do like short three mile runs just for the sake of running itself. That's nice. And what about, I love that there's a chapter on transitioning away from your passion, mm -hmm. but like, how do you know when to do that? Especially if you've been doing it for so long. Uh, I don't think that there's one way that you can know. I think, you know, like you said, it's hard to tease out what is something that demands a two day break, a two week break, a one year break versus what is something that it's just time to move on to the next thing. And what I would say is that patience is such a virtue there. So like it's really easy to be down on the thing for whatever reason and to stop. But if you can just be patient and give it some time and then you still want to stop, I think that that's really telling. Yeah. And, and like for athletes, I think it's like start with like a month off. And then if you still want to stop, be like, OK, two months off. And then after two months, if like you're loving life, OK, three months off. And then if after that you're still there, it's like, great. You don't make as long as you're not making like your living doing this thing. I feel like we put all this pressure on ourselves that we have to keep doing it because it's our identity. But if you're enjoying life more without doing it, that's great. And there'll be a rough transition period, even if you're an amateur. Like I, I mentioned, I, I like to come back to myself because by no means do I have all this stuff figured out. When I stopped running, like the first month was really hard because it was like, are people going to listen to me as an expert on performance if I can't run a sub three marathon? And am I still going to be a part of the running community? And literally, I remember like looking in a mirror and being like, I'm not a sub three runner and like feeling bad. And then it was like after one month, it was like a switch flicked. And it's like, this is awesome. <laughs> I'm not running anymore. <laughs> like, I'm not worried about this. I'm not injured all the time. Like, this is as great as I felt. And now I look back and I just laugh at it. But when I was in that transition period, like there was nothing funny about it. Yeah. And I, I can see that for entrepreneurs as well, because you could start these businesses and they could be doing like sort of well and you might not even be failing, but you might just not even love it anymore or you might just be bored with it. And it's just hard to know, though, like, should they stick it out or should they are they on the plateau or do they really not like this anymore? And should they just give up and move on? And I think that I, I think, again, like the inertia of whether you're an entrepreneur or doesn't even have to be an entrepreneur. Like you might be a corporate attorney that's like a senior associate and like you're not sure if you want to be a partner. The inertia of these paths of passion is so strong that I think you really have to figure out ways to get outside of yourself. So there's like the asking the brain trust of people you, you really trust. And then there's just pretending that a close friend is in the same situation and telling yourself what you tell that friend. And that's a pretty reliable way of coming to an answer of, hey, like, just give it another month and see how you feel versus you've really been like pounding at the same stone. Maybe it's time to like pound at a different stone. Yeah. And then there's also burnout from intrinsic motivation as well, because like you could be intrinsically motivated to want to improve or be intrinsically motivated to do the thing because you love the thing so much. Then you can still overdo it without getting results or recognition. Mm hmm. Like, that's a real thing for sure. Yeah. Like, that's, uh, I think that's yeah. really annoying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, but it isn't because, again, it's like framing. If you think of that as the mind body's way of telling you that you need to step back and you listen, then a week, two weeks, whatever later, you'll be ready to roll again. So it's almost like, I mean, the best wearable device is like being in touch with your mind body. <laughs> 
you don't need heart rate variability or, you know, whatever else. Like, I shouldn't rag on these things. I get criticized <laughs> for ragging on these things too much. But you don't need all these, like, measures to tell you whether or not you should be doing the thing. Like, if you just get in touch with how you're feeling, let that guide you. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to burn out from intrinsic motivation. I think that's like, oh, I need a rest. I'm going to celebrate this. And then if the rest turns into a year, then it's like this chapter is done. And that doesn't change your identity as a passionate person. It just means that, huh, like everything that I've learned from that adventure is going to be a part of the next one. Yeah, that's a really positive way to look at it. And that's such a beautiful tie in with your other book, Peak Performance. It's like I tell myself all the time, have the courage to rest, have the courage to rest. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have the courage to rest. And then if you find yourself enjoying it, don't be so hard on yourself. Like, okay, this is great. There might be a time when like you've done what you have to do in bike racing. I'm sure that time will come. Yeah. Yeah. And like when that time comes, like it might be a really hard, sad transition, but it might also not be. It might also be like everything that you've accomplished as a bike racer Those are like your actions and those don't go away. You own those, whether you're racing the bike or not. And like those are out there in the universe. And then you just kind of continue on to the next thing. It's kind of like, this sounds very Buddhist, but it's like the illusion of an identity that's tied up in the thing is an illusion to begin with. Yeah. You know, so like that doesn't really change. And your actions, those are real and those are going to stay regardless So as long as you come back to like your identity based in your actions, then there's really no loss of identity. It's just like you're moving on to the next thing. I think that's a really great place to wrap it up because I think that that's just put perfectly well. (laughs) Thank you. So if people want to find other works that you've done, I mean, you and Steve have written Peak Performance and Passion Paradox, but you both also write a lot. You have your newsletter. Like, where's the best place for people to plug in so they can get their weekly dose of of Brad and Steve? Yeah, so the best place right now is the book's website. We've kind of consolidated all of our information under that. So it's www.passionparadoxbook.com. And if you just Google Passion Paradox in our names, you'll also be able to get to the website. And we're launching a new program that we're really excited about. It's going to be a live monthly discussion group via Zoom, which is like a video conference. And it's totally donation based. So if you can make it, you should join. You know, if you can't make a donation, that's fine. Come for free. And the point of the group is to acknowledge that these concepts are only as valuable as they're applied. And applying them can be really hard, even for the authors of these books. And it's really good to have a supportive community to work on the practice with. Oh, that's cool. Um, So there's information about that on the website as well. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to get to chat with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure getting to chat with you, too. I love these conversations. And thanks for reading the book and uh, sharing some of the ideas in it with your audience. Of course. I hope you guys learned a lot from this great episode with Brad Stolberg, and you should definitely pick up the book Passion Paradox, get on their email news list, and also get the Peak Performance book as well. And speaking of email newsletters, I'm trying to figure out the best way to have an email newsletter. I have several of you subscribed to it, and if you haven't subscribed yet, you can just go to my website and a prompt pops up where you can put in your email. 
I'm not really sure what frequency I should be sending out emails because I get really annoyed if I get a lot of emails from people, but I also like getting emails from the right people. So I'm trying to figure out the best way to make this newsletter something that you want in your inbox and just a way to help bring more value to you guys. So currently I'm not sending out a ton of emails, but if you want in on this, you don't want to be left behind whenever I start sending out really awesome tidbits and great pieces of information, you can go to the website for that. And I also send out reports that I write post-race for some of my events as well through this newsletter. So thanks so much, you guys. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.